millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, it's Lainey. Hey, it's Duanna. And it's Kathleen. <laughs> we have a special <laughs> guest for a special day. Yeah, I'm here. It's homecoming. I'm, I'm going to try not to cry and scream this entire time. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, we want some of that. That's that's part of the purpose here. Sure, I'll give you a little bit. <laughs> I think we should probably first just describe what's happening right now. It is currently 5.54 a.m. Wednesday, April 17th, the year 2019. <laughs> Eastern Standard Time. You both have been at my home for about four hours now. Uh-huh. You arrived at 2 a.m. That's correct. We watched Beyonce Homecoming on Netflix together literally the minute it dropped. Yeah, yes. like uh, one or both of you were yelling at 2.53, let's go, let's go downstairs. <laughs> seven minutes. We have seven minutes. That's right. We did not plan it, but we, of course, all showed up in Coachella, Beachella merch. Absolutely. Like, what else would I have shown up in, (laughs) Elaine? I don't know what else. I just like that we didn't even have to pre-talk about it, that it just (laughs) happened. Um, And now we are ready to do our first raw, unedited podcast for Show Your Work in honor of Beyonce. Yeah, you're hearing us on very little sleep and on all excitement and the bobbles and the squeeze <laughs> and the half-finished sentences where you just go, I she, uh, bleh. Yeah. You're going to get all of it. In honor of Homecoming, we're doing the most un-Beyonce thing ever, which is to put out a product that has not been <laughs> <laughs> reviewed or rehearsed a million times. Yeah, with no preparation. <laughs> just because we think that it kind of fits with just letting it all out there on the stage. It also just, Beyonce has been so good at creating these moments where we all woke up for this. We just were on Twitter and it seems like everyone else is awake right now too. Yes. And we're all experiencing this together. So this podcast gets to just be our reaction together no to one's this gonna incredible be, thing. No one's going to be fucking useful at work today. Nobody. Oh my God. But, you know, we started this plan to do this crazy thing at 2 in the morning because of logistics and when are we going to do this and how, you know, how are we going to watch it in time. But ultimately, I think I wouldn't have wanted not to be – the whole thing is so much about being together and about the community and the thing that how could I not see it with you guys specifically (laughs) um, singing and crying on the couch in equal measure – I think that was kind of the design, I hope. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so let's get started. Why don't we just start with first impressions? Like, Kathleen cried every 10 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) I I might have timestamped the moments when you cried. I was like, okay, the first one was here, the second one was here. Oh, God. You guys, I'm just going to… Okay, you're both judging me already, so I'm (laughs) going to try… I'm I'm never going to judge you for crying over Beyonce. I'm just going to try to get through this opening part without crying. 
because I just feel like we need to get the corny stuff out of the way. At least I do. Because there are so many moments in Homecoming where Beyonce explicitly says, you know, this was made for you. I'm like, this was made for you. I was thinking about black people and black culture and the young black girls like my daughter who are going to grow up and watch this. And, you know, this is why representation matters. We know that there are so many times when I had to grow up with things that were not made for me. And Beyonce did too. And I just, I can't even really articulate how much it meant to me to have her quoting so many uh, brilliant black minds like Toni Morrison, like Nina Simone, um, like all of the the people that she that she uh, referenced, and have them kind of be like this foundation in which she built this beautiful experience for us. That's I can't, I'm shaking. I'm so it's just I had to get that corner shit out of the way. It's great. No, I mean that's why you're here and that's why it's important. Like in many ways, I think, and maybe we'll get into this later, but Homecoming, I love it, but I also understand that there's a part of it, a big part of it that's maybe not specifically for me. Yeah. And I think that's, that's by Beyonce's design. That doesn't mean that you can't enjoy it. I I agree. Mean that it's not something that you are going to love and watch every day for the rest of your life, like I am every single day for I the will. rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> but it just means that she created this mm-hmm. thing. Um, she said, "I wrote it down." She said, "I wanted everyone to feel like any. I wanted everyone t- who has ever felt like they were dismissed because of how they look to feel like they were up on that stage." I just want to interject and say that I have a note here that says that exact same quote and then says, when Kathleen started crying. (laughs) (laughs) Which uh, I felt like I was up on that stage and I don't, I honestly don't know how those, those dancers and those band members weren't weeping the whole time. Right. And I mean, I think that's because it's, they've been feeling that for the months and months that it took to get here. Right. But what you're saying about um, how much of it felt specific to you personally, Mm -hmm. um, that it was the antithesis of times when you had grown up having to kind of adhere to an entertainment that wasn't for you. And then for Elaine, for you to say that it's, you know, parts of it are not for you specifically, this is where I love this is what she's so good at, at specificity is mm-hmm. universal, Absolutely. right? I'm going to show you everything that I love, everything she's really clear that this speaks to her because she grew up watching homecoming performances like these that, you know, she didn't get to go to the HBCU that she thought she would. Um, but then it shares the joy with all of us because all the things that come through, joy, work, Excitement, community, whatever. Those are universal. Those are universal, absolutely. It's, and it's skillfully done per usual, which is the understatement of the millennium. Yeah, there's – like there were surprises for me, but the surprise was not the work ethic. The surprise no. was not the preparation. The surprise was not the hustle. I do think for me, I 
feel closer to Beyonce now. I feel like we did get to know her better. And she doesn't typically let us get to know her in that intimate kind of way. Well, I'll be honest. Um, When we were watching sort of at the half hour mark, the 40 minute mark, I went, oh, okay, this is much more of a concert film than it is a documentary. We, I think on a previous episode, referenced Truth or Dare, uh, which is way more behind the scenes story than it is performance film. And this is not that. And initially, I felt, oh, I want more. I want more behind the scenes. I want more Beyonce. But of course, what that does, don't look at me with that. Ang- well, like it's because I felt that energy off of you. I could, I could tell. <laughs> like 10 minutes in, I was like, this, I'm getting a vibe from doing she wants, She wants us to cut. Because you said 19 minutes or something at some point. Well, it was Be- 19 minutes before we get the first cut to backstage yes. to, to what's happening. Yeah, and I could feel that you felt like it was too long. And I disagree because we need this performance in the canon. Like, we, like the stream of it doesn't exist anymore, right? So this film is where we get to revisit this iconic performance that we will never see again. Yeah, and then from nobody, any living artist. And the vast majority of people never got to see. Exactly. No, for sure. I'm just not knowing beforehand what it was we were going to get. I was just processing, okay, this is the type of film that she's doing. What that does, of course, and like, make no mistake, I mean, you were there with me. You saw me like crying and singing <laughs> and the whole thing. What that does is it makes those moments when you are closer to her, when you're behind the scenes, Mm -hmm. that much more poignant. Like Mm -hmm. everything else, this is what kills me about this woman. Like everything else, it's about restraint and only giving as much, like leave them wanting more, right? Mm -hmm. It's not two hours of look at me and look how great I am backstage. It's here are tiny little glimpses yep. of my eight months leading up to this, of my year leading up to this, that illustrate and highlight everything you need to know while you're watching this performance that's in the canon. Exactly. And I think without seeing so much of the performance, almost all of it, those backstage moments wouldn't even be as impressive, right? Like the, the fact that she spent eight months you get to see the fruits of that. She wanted to show you the work. She's showing the work. I think she's we might this actually, podcast. Yeah, it's, it's true. She she did it for us. I actually think we might be really shortchanging her by saying eight months because she said there were four months with the band and then four months with the dancers. But I, right. I yeah. think that that like in in sequence. But of course, there's also like that's after – the whole show is lined up. That's after yes. it's conceived, after you figure mm-hmm. out how you're going to transition to all those things, after sure. all that score and everything is written. I think that's just active rehearsals and not conception. Um, I, It's amazing. Well, and to say nothing of the fact that, and she tells us in this film, she always wanted to go to an HBCU. Like she said, her university was Destiny's Child. So, mm-hmm. and that's not that she would ever change that, but that is sort of hearing Beyonce articulate those things. These are what I would have, these are the dreams that I would have wanted to pursue if I wasn't Beyonce, if I, you know, wasn't in this girl group, if I wasn't Star Search. This is the life that I would have wanted to lead. And 
it's not like there's regret, but there is envy. There is something that even Beyonce, Giselle, Knowles, Carter envies that she daydreams about. And so when you were talking about conception, I think for her, like this has been a 25-year, probably more process where she's been internalizing the images that she would see when she would go visit HBCUs and learn about homecoming. And all of that has come together at this point in her career. So when you say that something is monumental, like that is not an overstatement when you talk about homecoming. Mm-hmm. And then she talked a lot about creating a safe space, which I think really goes back to HBCUs and probably why a driving force as to why she wanted to go there and then why she wanted to celebrate and I think she said preserve or protect them at some point. Um, and that was her goal of this performance. And you just see that come through with with all the dancers and all the band members. Um, yeah, it, it was incredible. It was incredible and technical. Yes. Like I, I feel like maybe we should begin on the tech side of it first before, you know, getting into any more because without the tech, which is her foundation, which is the foundation to be able to thrive and to be joyful – um, we like kept screaming at, I don't know, every five minutes about a new camera angle because <laughs> all of us, because all of us watched Beachella in 2018. Like mm-hmm. this was not the first time we saw this performance and those camera angles were already great. Like they were her own. Those were not Coachella's. We, do- we talked about this, Duanna, yeah, on absolutely. the episode of this show after the live concert. Which we'll link to, of course, in the notes. Yes. And we said, you know, she brought in her own cameras to go along with the choreography. But now we're finding out that there was a second layer and a third layer and a fourth layer of camera for the film. Like, right. <clears throat> okay, Beyonce. <laughs> like, there were so many times when I was like, how did we not see this camera yeah. when we were watching the Coachella feed? Like, or the Beachella feed, I should say. Um yeah, there were just so many incredible shots. Like there was one shot where the camera was coming through. It looked like a steady cam coming through the pyramid from behind. Yeah. So if you're get, getting a wide shot yep. from the front, you see that camera. And I don't remember watching Beachella the first time and yep. seeing a camera at all. Yeah. Well, and that's that, just hard. It's incredibly hard. But that speaks to that in and of itself, right? Yeah. Like, I never want to see a camera on stage, she says to her Beyonce cams, like when they're live switching last year, right? Mm-hmm. And yet, you're right, they were there. There's that great sequence near the end of the uh, the near the end of the movie where um, that one guy's wearing a shirt. I don't remember what it said. Uh, the kind of burgundy shirt. Yeah, yeah. Remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, he's wearing a shirt and then she sees him and points at him and then he dies. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's a rabid fan in the front row and he, she sees him and he dies, but we see him dying, freaking out, losing it, blah, blah, the whole thing. There's like a, almost a minute of him like falling down. I'm dead. Back up, freaking out. Everybody around him is like, oh my God, you just won the lottery all from that camera that you're talking about at the top of the pyramid on the stage that you're right, we never once saw. When we saw cameras, it was intentional. Like it was Mm -hmm. part of the shot. Mm Yes. And obviously there were 40 more or more that we didn't see and those images are captured in this show. It's unbelievable. And to your point, you brought up the fan. I think think, um, Strong Black Lee tweeted out 
the fact that the cameras were also instructed to search that white audience mm. to make sure that the crowd shots, what we what we were seeing in the crowd shots were primarily her people. She wanted to see black faces and black fans represented. Um, we know Coachella is predominantly a white audience. And so that was a deliberate effort too. So they had their notes, they had their instructions, like they clearly, the camera operators had to rehearse just as much as the dancers and the band and Beyonce herself. Yeah. I mean, I didn't see that strong back lead tweet, but that I put in my notes to point out that she specifically was looking for the black people in that audience. Because one of the things I think that we wrote about um, in 2018 was how white that audience is. And that Beyonce, the fact that she put on such a celebration of blackness and a show that was so black in front of that white audience with their flower crowns, which she called out at some <laughs> point, um, it was really even more poignant. So the fact that in Homecoming, most of the shots of the audience are all black people, that clearly was deliberate. So I'm going to go one step further and say not just of black people, but largely of young black women who are yes. loosely of college age. Mm-hmm. It continues the whole mm-hmm. narrative. She is. She kept talking about characters. And on the one hand, she's showing us all the dancers and musicians and so forth who are uh, either in college or, or graduates or, uh, as some of them said, you know, uh, did, like how many of you wish that you went to an HBCU? Um, but those women that she highlighted are meant to be the recipients of the message directly and overtly, which I loved. And the other thing that that made me think, other than can you imagine being one of those people and waking up this morning and like your, your Instagram <laughs> your is going to be yeah. blown up. Oh my God, you're there. But the other thing that that made me think of is how much I appreciate that, you know, this is not just a, like this was a film that was, had something else to show. All those camera angles that you're talking about that we didn't see. And now I'm musing aloud that I bet you they were also in like, Beachella uniform in order to blend, hmm. but all those cameras that you didn't see and all the extra stuff that you didn't see is makes this worthy of going up in the first place. Does that make sense? It's not yeah. just a retread of last year's Coachella, which was phenomenal for a concert film at that time. Absolutely. Yeah, you're right. I mean, because again, None of what we saw in terms of what was on stage was new for us per se, Mm -hmm. but it felt new Mm -hmm. because she was giving us a different vantage point. It's And it's hard to do. Like, it's hard to do, especially, I mean, not to, not to like shove it up our own ass, but like we're TV people. Yeah. So we've we've all worked on live shows. Like I work on a big live war show every year. Yeah. And I know how hard… First of all, the rehearsal that it takes. And we you see it. You see how long she rehearsed for. But it takes a lot of rehearsal and a lot of time to get those cameras right, that timing right. And the fact that she had – basically, she had two simultaneous productions going on. Yeah. She had this homecoming production and then the live Coachella stream. Right. That's ridiculous. But you know what I think the difference was, and one of the big differences is cutting the two performances together seamlessly. So mm-hmm. the transition between, I mean, we kept calling it yellow and pink, right? Right. 
um, the transitions between yellow and pink were so smart. Like that editing, that it made it again over and above the cameras feel like a new show. Yes, yes. absolutely. Um, and the subtle differences between them, mm-hmm. um, what it, the wardrobe changes I kept calling out, uh, little additions to the costumes or you know slight differences to positions or whatnot were cut in a way not to just be like, oh, hey, we did this twice, or now let's show off the pink cast. It was to knock you on your ass. Like, the transitions were to go, look, oh, my God, we did this twice. Like, amazing. You're (laughs) not – it is – it feels like the same night, the same moment, and yet we created that energy twice. With 200 people on a stage. Yeah. 200. And I should say – yellow and pink casts. I don't mean that there were two different casts. Yeah, although right. Although everybody who was a an understudy was desperately wishing that there were. <laughs> Can we um, talk about the audio for a second? Because yeah. there was probably one of the most behind-the-scenes moments of the film was when Beyonce is talking about the audio mm-hmm. and how she's feeling it on stage and it's not coming through on film. Well, that, that was, to me, like, if we're going to talk about show your work – that was Beyonce, the boss, expressing disappointment. Like mm-hmm. she was essentially saying to the team, and it was their anniversary night. I believe it would have been their 10th anniversary last year, Jay and Beyonce. And so that would have been April 4th. So yeah. literally two weeks before go time. And she's saying, we're halfway there. Didn't raise her voice, but the words she chose, frustrated, uh, it's not working. Something has to be done. Can you imagine being the recipient of that <laughs> message? <laughs> no. Yeah. I, I can't either. But she it's also… So, well, you go. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say… I was going to say corny shit again. There's, there's a point where she says a prayer and she's like, thank you for choosing us. And I just… I want to say thank you, Beyonce, for choosing us to be the recipients of your blessings. But also, (laughs) (laughs) um, yeah, the thing, okay, so I think the the gratitude that I felt in that moment watching her was that she wanted us to experience the magic that she was experiencing on stage, and she really didn't feel like that was coming through, I guess, in the playbacks that she was watching. And so, yeah, it's terrifying, I'm sure, to be the recipient of her being so mad at you. But it's also like, this is the work. Like, she's like, she did that for us, for the audience, so that we could have this experience and Mm -hmm. hear the chanting in the background, which, as TV people, we know how hard Mm -hmm. it is to get that audio right. Well, and I um, am a music nerd, as we've talked a lot about and I have performed on countless risers and not like that. Um, but what, one of the things that is amazing but kind of unique to being up on a stage when you're performing is there's not just the blend of voices and sounds. There's not just like feeling the beat and whatnot. She talks about the risers shaking at one point. Mm-hmm. There's actually like a resonance. I'm not science smart enough to know what that is, but the sound wave vibrations feel a way in your body. And she's trying to capture that. That to me almost hasn't been done on film. She's saying, and I remember feeling that in the Coachella performance when we didn't know this film was coming a year later. I remember feeling there's almost a, 
like a vibrating mosquito tension feeling to uh-huh. the audio mm. that is a physical mm-hmm. physics thing that she ultimately did transfer. But that's hard to – it's hard to articulate, yeah. let alone hard to isolate and process and mi- put into a sound and video mix. So it's not just that she's demanding they do more. It's that she's going, we have to done – we have to do what's never been done before. It reminds me now that you're talking about this. A couple of years ago, Duanna, on the show, we talked about, I, of course, we were talking about Beyonce. can't remember. Maybe it was during the Coachella performance or after the Coachella performance. And we were calling back to an interview that a sound guy, I think the head sound guy was doing around her Super Bowl performance afterwards. Right. It was like a couple years after. And he kind of shit on her. He kind of said she was the most demanding. She was asking for shit that couldn't be done. You know, we're doing it in a football stadium. The stadium is set up for football. And then we have X amount of minutes, maybe like three to set up a stage for the Super Bowl. And so it was impossible to like live up to those demands. And the way he was talking, and we'll link to this in the show notes. And he was basically saying, you know, she, what she was asking for was unrealistic in that setting. But, you know, what she's asking for is to make sure that the audience to whom she's gifting this work is getting the best level of a performance that she's conceived. And so when I think back on that, Duanna, what you're saying here is it's going to be hard. Of course it's going to be hard. What's ever easy, that's great, right? And to go back and not look at it like, oh, this is just somebody who wants the best and instead is this is somebody who's unrealistic is so full of shit, which we had talked about when we originally talked about, but it speaks to you know, the difference between your perspective, Kathleen, which is when she's conveying her disappointment, she's not saying, like, you suck. She's saying, hey, doesn't everybody want to feel what we're feeling on stage? And that's the ultimate entertainment. hmm And that's, like, that makes my blood boil. I remember listening to you guys and, and being so pissed at that person because – We also know the, like, crotchety old dudes who have done things the way that they've done them forever. And they, first of all, he probably just didn't appreciate that, like, a black woman was talking to him the way that she was probably talking to him. I'm just assuming that (laughs) based on nothing. Um, But also. No, based on history. Based on history. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But also the fact that, like, we watch Super Bowl performances every year. We know how shit that audio is. So of course she was demanding more. Of course she was demanding better. Maybe she was asking him to do it a different way than he's done it for 40 freaking years. But because it's better, it makes me so angry. I mean, what you are referring to is that there is a special kind of misogyny and dismissiveness that certain uh, crew dudes who have been doing this for a million years have. It's a special brand of implying that you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, but exactly, your feverish nod right now is really making me happy. Um, but I love that what this was, again, is going, you know, here's my vision. Not just the clothes, not just the music, not just the whatever. But Kathleen, you talked about being able to hear the cheers and the whatnot in the background. I think we also got crowd audio in a way that we never have. 
I could be projecting and I will find out on subsequent viewings of Beyonce Homecoming like several times today. <laughs> Every day for but the rest of your life. I think that when we pan over those crowds and they're going like, oh my God, and losing their minds, I think that we can hear them. I think we have bits of audio in the mix that are of that crowd, not just as a horde, like, mm -hmm. but specific voices and cheers and whatnot. So that's never been done before. The Super Bowl audience is a monolith, right? Yeah. Like it's just like a big, you can barely yeah. see faces. And this was her going, not only are we going to make this, uh, you know, technically hear the stomps, hear the claps, but also I want now the viewing audience who's watching on Netflix to feel the crowd energy that I felt, which also as a performer is so unique, right? Mm -hmm. She wants you to feel what she was getting yeah. as well as what she was putting out. I feel like the Super Bowl is a really good comparison here because the scale is not as big at Coachella, but it is um, a comparative live performance with a big audience. And I think if you look, watch any Super Bowl performance and compare the two audios, it really shows Beyonce's work on this. And But I don't know that it's any like – you know, it has its own difficulties out in the middle of the desert and open space, totally. even though Coachella has put together a show, I don't know, 20 years in a row. And yet we all know she came in there to do something different. She was like rearranging the setup completely. Um, she was, you know, tossing out their people <laughs> and bringing in her own. Also, it's not an, it's not like a controllable environment. It's still outside, right? Whatever science is involved with um, acoustics and whatnot with not being able to really test it out over and over again. She couldn't rehearse there because, like, you don't want to blow the secret. So essentially, that first time going out there was the first time in open air in that desert, like, with, with, with hundreds of thousands of people affecting whatever acoustics might be affected, how, however it might be affected. Well, there's a great shot near the end where – uh, it's just B-roll of B and J walking around, like looking at the set or whatnot. Mm -hmm. And they're wearing bandanas, um, as is everybody else, because it's so bloody dusty, mm -hmm. right? Which affects your voice. Yeah. All that kind of stuff. It is one of the bajillion reasons why it was so important that she have the drumline and the band who have played in every condition, who are used to being mm -hmm. outside and in all whether who are not merely stadium performers, uh, because they can roll with all the things you need to roll with. Yeah. Um, and I'm just going to say again that uh, if you haven't watched my beloved show that I'm losing the name of now, embarrassingly, um, oh, the yeah. 10 part series on Bethune Cookman's yeah. marching band, Marching Orders, mm -hmm. yes. also on Netflix. Uh, one of the things that happens in that series is that they are playing in a deluge. Mm -hmm. And we should go and see if there's any crossover between the audio engineers on that show and on this one because you you get that that affects them, but that they don't lose the energy, that they don't lose the the precision. The She needed them to be as good as they are to get here. Well, what essentially she was trying to recreate was a stadium. Like if you think about homecoming and all those events, they happen in a stadium. So you've got an oval stadium with bleachers, right? And 
to your point, Amanda, when you're watching a show like Marching Orders or when you're there, you're going to get the roar of the crowd that like kind of reverberates inward into a dome. She wanted to recreate that. And then you're, you need to like the, but you're only on a stage that's facing out. Um, and then you need the stomping from the bleachers. Like you need that stomp to go like um, the Oval 360 as well. It's really, really like, I hope people appreciate on the tech side how fucking masterful this was. And I also have to say on that angle, I feel as though the costumes have been discussed to death because they were so beautiful and amazing. And of course, Balmain was involved. Feel free to correct my pronunciation. Uh, we're live here. We're raw. <laughs> but, um, but as I watched, there was so much technical about those costumes mm. that was there to relish, right? Yeah. The um, the unitards that everybody wore uh, had sheer one sheer leg, not no leg, which it looked like. Everybody's was precisely matched to their skin tone. All of the uh, all of the string players who were mostly women were wearing suit jackets but they were able to move their arms. If you're a string player, moving your arms is part of the game. And the drummers were playing uh, in sweatshirts, so it's not as difficult. But those jackets had to be engineered in such a way that they could still have the full yeah. length of their bowing arm. I'm just going to keep bowing uh, <laughs> yeah. here. Um, it was the precision in every bit of those costumes, I feel like I was a highlight again. And we should note that, I mean, maybe she did skip over, not skip over, but kind of only mention the costumes kind of in passing, I would say, um, because she knows that everybody has broken it down and talked about it so much. So that was the one thing that she could maybe cut down Yeah, I didn't cut down like on. I missed it. It no, was just a neither. visual treat. But she did say that everything was hand-stitched and that she had a hand in all of it and every single detail. She picked Which the lights. She picked, yeah. yeah, she, I mean, arranged the music. Like, the, the end credit comes up. It says, um, music arranged by Beyonce and Derek. I don't know his last name. But she, that's, that's when, she's, when she's kind of, like, giving shit to everybody. Yes. She starts with, Derek has to do this, and Derek has to do that, and you guys were only halfway there. Whatever. Um, you're right. Like, all of that the costuming and how it moves has to be able to support how it sounds. And thinking that through, of course it's going to take more than eight months. Christ. Absolutely. Yeah, sure. And I just want to say while I'm up, it is, again, this is a year old, but she had a vast representation. She had a vast representation of body types, right? Mm -hmm. And this is in the intervening time. Not only is there a sequence on marching orders where several people can't participate because Bethune-Cookman doesn't have uniforms in their size, but fucking NASA couldn't send an astronaut into space because there was not a spacesuit in their size. And you notice that every person of every size in this show moved, looked amazing, was in no way compromised. It is not that hard. 
I don't know what the budget was for each individual costume. I know it was less than a space suit. <laughs> well, this is also good. Just going back. <laughs> Correct. Um, anyway, I think it all goes back to the general message of, which is Beyonce's message of, of representation and, and having people see themselves on that stage, which... Again, I mean, I think we referenced this tweet or this quote or whatever it was. Like, if Beyonce can find a black violinist slash uh, trombone player slash, like, you know, uh, dancer instrument with with with, with, you know a different body type, if she can find all of those people, then you know all of the the white guys in comedy writers writers rooms who are like, I can't find any diverse voices, they can. If Beyonce can do all this, you can. She is showing you on that stage that, first of all, diversity is beautiful and wonderful and all of that back to representation matters stuff, but also that you can provide for these people, right? Like you can make the costumes. You can make the work. Of course. Of course and you can. there's never a question of... This is, I think, what I what I like and also what frustrates me about what you're saying is they've been there. Yes. People of all sizes and uh, colors and images have been there. They're just not seen, right? And because of, yeah, oh, we don't have the costume or we don't have the whatever, suddenly it's implied that they're not there because they can't do it. You know, exactly. like that yeah. there's an idea that, oh, if you're bigger, you can't dance this way or that you can't this or that. And that's so patently false, and she proves it, and it costs the cost of a Lycra uniform. Um, it's not that they're not there. It's not that they haven't been there this whole time being as good or better as everyone we've seen. It's that there are these false barriers that prevented us from seeing these people as well as until now. Exactly. You just said that way better than I tried to. <laughs> No, it's, I, it's six o'clock in the morning and we haven't slept, everyone. You got me there. <laughs> Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Um, let's talk about the, on the tech side then. We appreciated it when we saw it the first time, but I think it really punches you in the face this time uh, the musical transitions, the arrangements, Ugh. right? Yeah. And I just want to cut off uh, uh, before we go here. I just one thing because you know there's always going to be these assholes and idiots. Like there are certain things that yes you can fix and post, but the audio and the things that we've been talking about up to this point and what we're going to be talking about, there's no fixing in post. Like mm -hmm. it's either there or it's not. Yeah. Or another way to look at it is like. Uh, but Justin Timberlake has access to everything Beyonce has access to and still sounds like he sounds live, you know, like it's <laughs> excellent. I love that. Let's yeah. 
Like, I thank you, <laughs> thank you for bringing him up in that context. She works bloody hard, but as far as we know, she's not inventing new technology, right? She's not creating new. Uh, she's not creating new sound waves. So yeah, sure. There's there's auto tune. There's uh, engineering. There's all kinds of things. But to your point, you can't fix what isn't there. Mm-hmm. So can we also put Taylor Swift in that? <laughs> yeah, because sure. Taylor Swift, one hundred percent. If you've watched her Netflix documentary or not documentary concert film, um, I've only got like twenty minutes in, but. She has the same access, like you're saying, to all of the things Beyonce has, and she does not sound as good, I will say, um, to put it nicely. So, yeah, the transitions, the arrangements. I, I Listen, when we watched the first time, it was like, holy shit. But here, given that we're, like, given different angles of it, and with two performances to weave in that she does, I mean, that arranging is... I mean, mixing all those different kinds and sounds of music and the songs and covers and… Seamlessly. Seamlessly. I just want to point something out. I don't know if you've ever been to, like, the symphony, and uh, that's largely considered to be, you know, the height of music in a certain way, right? Those are the people who go to Juilliard and whatever. You know what they have at the symphony? Music stands. (laughs) They have stands. To tell them where yes. to, when to play what note. They're reading music, which is its own skill. Everybody on that stage is playing every single thing from memory. You know who doesn't have music stands, though? The marching bands at HBCUs. That's what I'm which saying. Which is exactly why she chose them for this type of performance. Absolutely. But, it's, but that's the thing. It's already at a higher level of difficulty. Mm-hmm. They never have music stands. They never have. Sometimes you see like a parade and like little high school kids, and I'm not maligning high school kids, but mm-hmm. like attached to the tuba is a little mini stand with your music on it. They don't have that. Mm-mm. They have to know every note. Mm-hmm. And like shout out to the lung capacity of the tuba players who are playing nonstop for two hours. And dancing. And dancing. Yeah. Yeah. With no music, with no reminders, mm-hmm. with no, it's you are perfect or you die. There's it's, no option. It's one thing to like know the music. It's another to know the music and remember that like on this sequence, you have to sway to the right first and then to the left. Like that would fuck me up. Uh, so speaking of fucking up, guys, that's my alarm clock we just heard. <laughs> if this was a normal day, you'd be I, waking up. I would just be waking up. <laughs> Listen, Duana, that's unacceptable. This is my Beyonce voice. We're trying to give the audience the experience. I feel like she'd be We're halfway there. Even a little lower. Uh, I, I respect what you're trying to do, but… So, yeah, you're, you're totally right. I love that observation. No music stands, all by memory, with choreo. Like, with choreo. Which, again, is something that these marching bands are used to. Yeah. And with performance. Like, yes, choreo and yes, music, but also… Um, expression. Well, maybe this is transitioning I mean, us people. to a different oh. part of… <laughs> you said it, not me. black people. <laughs> well, you, the, the, like, Beyonce says the word swag many times in that first behind-the-scenes sequence yeah. of what she was looking for. And that's, that's, yeah, that's well, the beauty of blackness, everybody. She says something really great. She says, like, there's so much that they have naturally. And she's mm-hmm. like, yeah, the, the talent, the, the precision… The haircuts, she says, and it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, she wants all the parts of them. 
And so maybe this is transitioning us to a different part of the conversation, but she kept using the word characters. And I loved mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. because more than any other Beyonce show yeah. even, they're, they're not uniform. They're they're perfect. They're yeah. precision, but they're not all the same. No. The dancers, the musicians, the singers are encouraged to make their own faces. Yep. Um, to have their own expressions. They're not uniform. Um, and I think that is different from an HBCU performance generally. I think everybody is in absolute formation yeah. to underline a word. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was no, also be you, also be yourself. We don't need. 25 versions of the same person, which is again highlighting her major thesis, right? Which is there's so much diversity and Mm -hmm. richness and glory uh, that's going unseen. But I loved that, you know, different haircuts, different like styles. Everybody wore the same beret, but they had different sort of permutations of how they wore things. Some girls got to wear their shirts untucked. Some didn't. It I loved her use of the word characters Mm -hmm. to show it's not – what's the word I'm looking for? It's not uniform. It's not a monolith. Mm -hmm. If you – you know, we've talked a little bit and we'll get more into the fact that for some people this is their first introduction to the idea of historically black colleges and universities, and we'll talk more about that later. But I think for her to be like, look – at the diversity in even in within these contexts, it's that's new for her, and I love that for her. Yeah, I completely agree with you, and I think that yeah, not to get too far into, I think what she was trying to do with her her theme of highlighting HBCUs and celebrating them, but yeah, she wanted to show again. We keep talking that it's a celebration of blackness, and I and I. I think I wrote this in 2018 where sometimes it's it's hard when you're like something is so black or because my black experience as a Canadian is so different than someone who went to an HBCU or a Beyonce who, you know, grew up in Houston. Like our our black experiences are so different. So to, yeah, try to paint it as a monolith is difficult and not accurate. And I think that's part of what she was trying to do. She had a very specific, as we always say, a very specific thesis and a very specific portrayal she wanted, but she also was able to make it kind of universal because there were all these different characters and there was someone you could spot with their shirt untucked or with a different body type or with a different hairstyle that you could look and say, that's me. Well, and it's amazing because it wasn't just, you know, uh, earlier tonight before we watched the documentary, um, I was cutting up my sweatshirt. Kathleen was horrified, but also on her phone. You were typing like, something and also yelling at Yasek. And we're not going to talk about this sweatshirt, but you were defacing Beyonce property on the day of Beyonce. <laughs> I am customizing it. I am bringing out my character, which she would want. But, <laughs> Lainey, you said um, this is like a college dorm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that uh, we're all talking while doing three different things and, like, waiting for the next thing to happen. And I think to your point, Kathleen, it's not even just a celebration of 
blackness, but a celebration of blackness in that college space, right? Mm-hmm. Like, Absolutely. let's be clear, not everybody who performed for her was a, a college student at that time, not least because you can't go to school and be rehearsing for Beyonce 16 hours a day. Um, but that joy, that freedom that everything's possible, that to me, I don't know about you guys, but that to me speaks so clearly to those college and university years of like, yeah, we, if we're together, the sky is the goddamn mm. limit. Um, and, and there's sort of adventure around the corner. So it's that, it's that tiny a thesis, right? Mm-hmm. This is the spirit of being 22 at an HBCU, which is not an acronym that's getting easier. Um, <laughs> is that's the the very, very specific spirit that she's selling to us. I felt very young. Well, but also it's, to Kathleen's point earlier, it's a specifically safe space to be individual. I love that, yes. So, you know, Black students, as we know, if they were at a non-HBCU, would likely have to behave differently. Mm-hmm. Um, at mild, at best, code switch. At worst, you know, aggressively self-protect all the time. What she was trying to illuminate in the show, and she said it explicitly, is that on her stage was a safe space for all these people to be themselves, to make the expressions that they wanted to make, adjust their costumes the way they wanted to adjust it, um, move the way they wanted to move, not in like in formation, but as unique individuals by like under the protection of of Beyonce. Um, it's very, very powerful that whole like with the moment she dropped the word safe, the documentary became a much more fuller picture than what we saw in 2018, where she was really underlining her purpose. It was not only like should these students have the right to continue to be safe, but that here is the goal of my life. Mm -hmm. I'm quoting Toni Morrison. I'm quoting Nina Simone. What is my purpose here? My purpose here as a black leader is everything I do, I'm going to be providing safe spaces for people who don't feel safe. Yeah. And I think that that's even more powerful I mean, it's so it's so cliche now to say, you know, in, in these these times in America. Um, but she I don't think didn't. It's a cliche if it's so true. Yeah, and but she didn't have to explicitly say that. You know, she didn't have to tell a story. You know, of um, a, you know the the girl who fell asleep in her dorm and someone called the police. Um, she didn't have to tell the story of that video that just went viral of a black student at Columbia who. Um, you know, got arrested for not showing his student ID when he was a student. Like these black students who are not safe in their spaces. She didn't have to explicitly tell us that or say the name of the president of the United States, but because she used those words and because of the quotes that she used from black scholars who most of those quotes they said at HBCUs, she made that point without having to be explicit or cliche. Was it like a you know, I'm asking you as a, a young black woman, is that like... I'm so young. Thank you so much. <laughs> I, I, I wasn't going to interrupt what was about to be a serious moment, but like, are we still doing that? Um, but is it like, you know, that is a common language, a bat signal to the community. Hey, like these are the words that that bind us together, that identify us to each other. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, I I got it right away, and mm-hmm. I and I felt it, and it. I was probably crying in the moment when she said that. Yeah, because yeah, there are so many moments um, that you they yeah you just don't feel safe or that you can mm-hmm. be yourself, um, and it's and it's hard to articulate to um, non black people to to be honest. It's it's hard to um, articulate how much safer you can feel in a room full of people who look like you. Well, I'll tell you something. As a non-black person, I don't think I would have appreciated the um, the depth of that 10 years ago. Like, I think that that is a process of education for many non-black people who may be watching or, and participating in these conversations. As a person of color myself, I certainly have some experience with that but I don't know what the black experience with that is. And I would argue that the black experience compared to mine is much more vulnerable. And even the black American experience yeah. specifically is, is very vulnerable, again, especially now. And, you know, I would imagine, I, well, I know for a fact that to not have to explain that, to not have to be doing the work of underlining all those things and explaining is part of the safeness of the space, right? Like let's, those quotes uh, that are kind of interjected through each section, I bet money, there are some of them that I knew and there were some of them that I was like, who said that? And then of course she had the attribution, right? And Mm -hmm. where it was said. I bet you money that that is actually for non-black people. Mm -hmm. That is showing people who don't already know, even though it's not her job to educate, even though she's making a celebration, she can't help but underline, no, here's what you, here's what we already know, Mm -hmm. right? There's a reference to the black national anthem at one point and they don't explicitly explain what that is. And of course, we know because you've done the research, you've heard, et cetera. But the fact that it can just be tossed off like that, I think would be an enormous relief to have your cultural references understood mm-hmm. without having to kind of constantly aside and say, oh, well, actually, this is this, yeah. is part of that safety. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what she did so well. Like, I don't, again, this is when we say, it's for us or when Beyonce explicitly explains that this is for black people or for black culture, I think that's, that's the nuance there is that she's not explaining. She wasn't, I don't think that she was thinking of a white audience when she made this. And I think that's, that's a a difference in putting your, your art or your work out there because she would have explained more Mm -hmm. if she was thinking about that white audience. She would have been like, no, they don't know what the, Black national anthem is. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't maybe they don't know what HBCUs are, so she would have explained it more, and she didn't. And I think that is really why this this piece of art is is specific. I do think too, though, that um, you know it was intentional. Like she, if we're in an academic setting, so to speak, then part of it is also let me go do my research or let me give you research to go do. Here's your homework for those people who don't get it. And to just to like keep going with the layer upon layer of being a student and studying and in an academic setting, when she's quoting Toni Morrison and Nina Simone and uh, 
Audrey Dubois, and Cornel West. Yes. Mm-hmm. And Maya Angelou, I think, is in there. Maya Angelou's mm-hmm. in there. Miriam Wright Edelman. Right. When she's Alice quoting Walker. these people, when she's putting their, those quotes up on stage, she is saying, these are the people who taught me. I am a student, too. So I am representing the academic student experience at HBCUs. I didn't go to one, but my I have had a black education. And there were times when I think when I got emotional, the most emotional I'm capable of getting in the film is when, I mean, I love Nina Simone and I do listen to quite a bit of Nina Simone. And when you hear Nina Simone's voice, you can't but you when you hear Nina Simone's voice, you can't not remember one of her most famous performances and songs, Young, Gifted, and Black. Mm-hmm. And so she didn't play Young, Gifted, and Black in the film, but many, many years ago, it was Nina Simone singing that to students who went to HBCUs. And Beyonce has now taken up the torch as a student and singing her version of what Young, Gifted, and Black did for that generation of students to this current generation of HBCU students and hopefully a future generation, mm-hmm. which I find is so powerful because she's continuing a legacy. Yeah, absolutely. I wrote that moment down as well, especially because, yeah, Nina Simone, like yeah, the Young, Gifted, and Black um, phrasing specifically was um, inspired by Nina Simone's friend, Lorraine Hansberry, and she gave this talk, which Nina Simone, this quote that was in um, mm-hmm. Homecoming, is inspired by. Yeah. Lauren Hansberry was talking to students in 1963, I feel like. And just a, she's the playwright who wrote Raisin in the Sun, right? Yeah, she's yeah. The, the playwright who wrote A Raisin in the Sun, the yeah. first black playwright on Broadway. Mm-hmm. And... She was giving a speech, and so for the first time, she said, to be young, gifted, and black, I can't think of a more beautiful combination you can be. And to say those words in the early 60s, that was radical. Nina Simone furthers that in this uh, quote that Beyonce puts in the documentary, and she says, um, she says that I think we are the most beautiful, that black people are the most beautiful, and she wants to compel black people, that beauty out of them and to compel them to know how beautiful they are. I'm paraphrasing. I'm butchering this quote right now. But to me, that was so intertwined with Beyonce's thesis and what you can tell her her life goal is now is so many people. And I think Beyonce grew up maybe thinking parts of, of their blackness weren't beautiful or weren't good enough. And she's even like, Beyonce, even Beyonce, yeah. because we we've seen her. She was, hasn't always been this Beyonce. Mm-hmm. We we saw her maybe in the beginning of Destiny's Child when she was dressing a different way and saying different things that there were parts of her blackness maybe that she didn't think were as beautiful because of the world that we, <laughs> we've been um, conditioned in. And anyway, I think that she has shifted her her focus that and that Nina Simone quote really like crystallized it. Um, and she's being like, that's, that's not the world we live in anymore. And that's not the world that blue is going to grow up in. And that's not the world that these black women, young women who are singing along to every word at Beachella, that's not the world that they grow up in anymore. Um, and she's doing everything in her power to make sure of that. Well, you know, what struck me the most about when that, to bring it back to the film, when that quote is read, 
Um, we're sort of looking over the rehearsal scene. And then just as it says that I think our bodies are the most beautiful, there are two dancers or singers who are just kind of playing around on the floor. And then one of them, a young woman, gets up without putting her hands on the floor. Like she's sitting cross-legged on the floor and she just gets up so gracefully and beautifully. Somebody said it's time to go rehearse or whatever. And I thought that is... When Beyonce talks about attention to every detail, that shot, which could have gone anywhere in the two and a half hours, perfectly illustrates Mm -hmm. that moment. Look at this beautiful body and how skillful it is and how effortless it was. Um, And sort of maybe to extend these two things that we're talking about, the idea of safety and of education. I love that we're talking about the quotes. The one that sat with me the most was education must not simply teach work. It must teach life. And that's W.E.B. Dubois. And that was great on its own. But the thing I kept thinking about when you were talking about safety and safety to be oneself, here I go getting emotional, was the woman who was a dancer who talked about how she had waited to do this and had been pregnant and her son was watching her. Um, That it's underscored by Beyonce's pregnancy story, which I want to get into as well. But the idea that from context, it seems as though she was under contract to be in the show or whatever, and then it was put off for a year and she was pregnant and had her son and was able to get back there. And it just was one more underscoring of you don't have to fit into a mold. There are life choices that are not going to preclude you from being here in this moment, right? It's not all fresh-faced 21-year-olds, or it is, Mm -hmm. but they don't all fit the mold of, oh, I just... uh, popped out of high school and straight to four years of university. I loved that they highlighted that moment because it was more of this is for everybody, that you can be here regardless of of your story or the path that you took to get here. And um, it was really affecting for me. I found that really, really uh, unexpected Mm -hmm. in that moment and in that context, and, uh, and I loved it. Mm-hmm. Beyonce's pregnancy and motherhood, I think one of the reasons she highlighted that is because it is, she talks about it a lot throughout. And her health struggles reminded me of Serena Williams and how um, open she's been about those struggles and how we know that the healthcare system fails black women and black mothers all the time, especially in pregnancy. And that was really powerful to me. Um, as well, coupled with that moment. She had previously detailed difficulties with her pregnancy um, in Vogue mm-hmm. last year, but it was way more specific in the film. We, I don't think we knew before that um, one of the baby's hearts um, was like, I don't know. For, she said the heartbeat was pausing. Yeah. Yeah. And that that's why she had to have an emergency C-section. I don't think – I think we knew about the preeclampsia before – um, but I don't know that we knew that, you know, there was such a crisis with the, the heartbeat. Um, and, you know, I know that when 
to your point, when Serena was revealing her difficulty with her pregnancy and Beyonce's previous revelation, there was a lot of appreciation out there for illuminating the fact that this is what many Black women deal with, that their uh, pregnancy crisis rates are much higher than other people. And even to people who are as resourceful and as connected, wealthy, essentially, as Beyonce and Serena Williams, they experience it too. And it's an idea of the generational trauma that is carried by Black women that affects what happens to them during childbirth and pregnancy. And Beyonce is putting her name beside that um, beside that reality too. I yeah, I, I think that all of that honesty is incredibly valuable coming from her. That uh, you know, it underscores kind of the whole paradox of Beyonce, which is that her one of her catchphrases is "I woke up like this," and in fact, that's a massive lie. Right? It's right. all about <laughs> work and and stress and whatnot. Um, but I'm just you know, not talking because I'm crying over here. <laughs> Go ahead. I think too, though, uh, what was most affecting for me in that sequence, which is is gonna be the banner sequence, like it's gonna be the the clickbait article. You know, ten things you didn't know about Beyonce's pregnancy. I expected a training montage. I expected her to say that she didn't, um, you know, that she needed to get her body back and whatever. I did not expect her to say, wow, now I'm getting emotional. This might be a first. <laughs> I did not expect her to say, I wasn't there mentally. I wanted to be with my children. And that is so, it, it's so, it's for Beyonce, who is literally the patron saint of this podcast, which is about work and the worship of work. For her to admit that there are conflicts sometimes in where you want to put your attention and your energy and that that conflict makes you feel like you don't know yourself was incredibly, incredibly powerful, um, certainly to me as a parent and I think to so many people who castigate themselves for not having her endless work ethic, right? Uh, Beyonce has the same number of hours in the day as you do. That's a real common refrain, right? Mm -hmm. For her to say, no, I felt conflicted. I felt like I didn't want to be there. And, and to say, and she kind of articulates, I'm not trying to be the woman who I was before I had my children, was an unexpectedly huge deal. Somebody else, please talk. <laughs> that, I mean, that is… I can't. <laughs> okay, I'll talk because I'm not crying. <laughs> um, I, 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 as you said, Duanna, I think that is the beating heart and soul of the documentary. Those, it was three minutes. Like, it wasn't very long. And she does a lot with those three minutes in when I said, you know, an hour ago or whatever, I feel closer to her… That is not a side of Beyonce we have seen in a while. Um, she's been candid before about like being afraid and self-doubt, but this was a like something has changed in me. She actually said, the, these are the words that surprised me, I will never push myself that hard again. 
and that's I, big. It's big also because I think that uh, not to constantly bring it back to this, but I'm going to because it informs everything. But there was a vulnerability in everything you just said, Joanna, that ha- I think that Beyonce has probably felt and a lot of black women feel that they cannot show because this, we know this, the strong black woman is a stereotype. It's a, it's a, a thing that you feel like you have to live up to and that you've had to because of the circumstances around you. And I don't think that she felt like she could show this vulnerability before. And now that she seems to be living in more of um, an authentic space, let's say, in more of a space where she's she's owning everything that she is, she's showing that vulnerability and she's, and she's showing that it's okay. I love that for lots of reasons, but also because what you're saying is that she's even stepping away from even a positive stereotype mm-hmm. is still a stereotype, mm-hmm. right? A strong black woman. Uh, you're right. I know that trope very well. I, you know, I admire it, but it's a trope and it's exhausting for anybody to be that all of the time. And um, I certainly don't want to imply that having vulnerability or having conflicted feelings about family and where you divide your energies is a weakness. I don't think no. any of us are saying that, no. but but you're right. Allowing herself to be multifaceted that way, to not just be a work machine is, is real, real new for the Beyonce picture that we know. I do think, though, that she has been able to achieve, which is I think in right now, at least, or let what we saw in in the documentary, which a goal that I think all of us are working towards, which is how to divide your time or at least, you know, not be conflicted or not castigate yourself to use your words. And yet, when you choose how to spend your time, you are fully present. yep. And that, to me, was captured in her rehearsal quote. That's why people don't like to rehearse because, it humbles you. Hmm. When she's rehearsing, she is fully there, fully present. And at times it's like not great for the ego either. Like it knocks you the fuck down. Right. Or maybe she's not fully present and castigating herself for that. You know, that's Mm -hmm. part of the humbling is get your head in the game, that kind of thing. Um, It's, it's, yeah, she's very, very honest about all the things that it takes to get there. And I loved a quote near the end that said, my family is my weakness and my strength. Mm-hmm. That really, really spoke to me. Because I I think who among us, right? And I just want to point out one other thing about sort of that in the bigger picture, and this has been a lot more discussed uh, in in kind of the, the cultural landscape, but underlining this whole documentary and her whole career, it's like, how does she do that? And how does she manage this? And how does she work so hard and so forth? And this is possibly controversial, but I want to be clear that she makes it clear you cannot do this without an incredibly supportive partner. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
I, that's not to say that you have to have a partner to be successful. It's not to say that, you know, that's the answer to her success. It's you cannot have a partner who is anything less than 1,000% behind you and expect to get to these heights, right? And that's illustrated by the, the moment you point out when at the end of her giving her notes to uh, Derek and everybody and saying we're halfway there and it was two weeks away, yeah. it was her anniversary. Mm-hmm. And there's that shot of Jay-Z sitting there and I thought at first that it was just highlighting that she's speaking, he's not speaking, but it's he's absolutely willing to be there. That is the way to spend their time is to spend his time supporting her. Yeah. There's also a moment that I think I fell apart at was um, she's talking about how hard it is to bounce back from pregnancy and she's talking about her how her body is just failing her and that things just aren't working. And I think Jay is is like stretching her out or like he's, pre- he's massaging her. Mas- I think, massaging yeah. her. And it's a it's a very quick moment. And it just broke me because it really, I think, showcased everything you're saying about having a supportive partner. And the fact that Jay-Z is that supportive partner for her now is, we all know the layers and layers of that. Yeah. Um, And that he is taking a back seat, we've seen in the past few years, to Beyonce and and her becoming um, the alpha, which we reference this piece all the time. From uh, I can't remember the writer's name at the Ringer, who basically called Beyonce the alpha of her Lindsay relationship. Lindsay Zolatz, I think. There we go. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that moment I think just really showed that and showed that Jay is supporting his wife and his woman. And well, it I broke mean, me. that scene in particular. If we want to go back a little bit to tech, technical, like uh, that scene revealed itself because you see the hands first. Mm. And so it surprised me um, because when you see the hands first, you think, oh, that is her, you know, on staff physiotherapist who is helping her through rehearsals. Her body is hurting and all that. And then we pan out and it actually ends up being Jay. To me, that's intentional, right? Of course. Like to your point, Duanna, she's showing those clips of Jay sitting next to her, being supportive, not talking, waiting not impatiently, but waiting for whenever they can leave to go celebrate their anniversary. There were three or four shots like that, actually, when she's giving notes to the crew where he's just sitting there. There are some other shots where he essentially is there parenting. Mm -hmm. Like Blue Ivy is with him. He's at rehearsal. He's minding their child and she's at work. And those, I think, are intentionally slipped in to the doc to reflect that, again, she's doing this with the support of a par- partner who we want to believe, and it seems to be, is 100, 110% there. Yeah. And certainly, like to your point, Kathleen, it's maybe it's cycles, right? That that there will be a cycle of time when she takes a backseat and he is up front again. But it is clear, at least in their family life, in their life, that he is, it's very clear that he is very aware that his job is to be her support, to be her number two in all the ways. You cannot do this. Again, I I say this, I'm not saying... Well, I don't mean to cut you off, but you have a thing that you have shared with your colleagues um, and you say all the time 
which I w- I'd love for you to share here, he's the wife. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I have, yeah, I have. I've said often, like, I wish I had a wife. I'm married to a wonderful partner who has a career of his own that is, you know, amazing and thriving. And sometimes, like, there are questions about dry cleaning, you know, or like who's going to the PTA meeting or whatever. And he is, because of their privilege and their money and all the rest of it, he's actively taking on that role. But it's not even that there is somebody to do that. I, it, I'm struggling around the idea of somebody who's present or absent. Um, my point is that a partner who is not a full partner in this context is worse than no partner at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Somebody who is whining that you've been at the studio for 15 hours, mm-hmm. somebody who is not supportive, not there, not willing to give you what you need to get here is actively taking something from you. And that's worse than not having somebody at all, which I feel is part of her whole thing, right? Like she's singing about always about like boy, bye, and like get rid of of a dude who's less than amazing. Yeah, you ain't ain't married to no average bitch, boy. Like that, those lines, and I think- That's exactly what you're saying is that like she went through the times when she was with a partner who was worse. Mm -hmm. She was worse off with them than not with them. And she wrote through it. And now she's got these songs where she's being like, no, this is this is the role you play in my life now or else you're not in it. And then we're seeing that like those lines juxtaposed with Jay parenting and Jay being supportive I think is even more powerful. Yeah, I can't I can't agree more. It was very clear that that whole narrative of boy by and mm-hmm. all of those things is in the context of this is you know, I don't want to say the bare minimum, but like this is what it can be. You can have somebody who is utterly devoted to your success and your triumph for now. And, you know, and there's back and forth and there's give and take and nobody is perfect. We know he's not perfect. And she is, despite our hour-long conversation, got to be not perfect, especially as a partner. But to have somebody who is signing on for that eyes fully open is is huge. But if you don't have that, a, a poor facsimile is worse than nobody at all. Um, do we want to talk about Blue singing? <laughs> I know you do. <laughs> well, I I don't have a, a visit. Well, okay. It, to me, it was a very obvious passing of the torch. It was, it came out of the, at a point in the dock, which felt like Beyonce was, was talking to the next generation, was, you know, driving home her thesis of this is, this is my safe space. This is what I'm passing on to, to the next generation. And now here's my daughter singing. She's just like me. She loves it as much as I do. And she is your future. I read it differently a little bit. Okay, go ahead. Same but differently. I read it as it was that song in particular. Like I'm sure Blue Ivy Carter sings all the time. Mm. But she shot selected that clip, that song, which is the Black National Anthem, as, yeah, she, as she whispered encouragement in her daughter's ear. So to your point about like, you know, preparing the next generation, 
supporting the next generation, in particular themed around that song, it was, yeah, like Blue Ivy is blue, but also a proxy for an entire generation of young, especially black women. Absolutely. We're seeing it the same way. Yeah. Beyonce is whispering in their ear being like, yeah, rejoice. Mm -hmm. I think I thought I saw it a third same way or not. Um, To me, I can't ever look at Beyonce and not think about the story, about the, like, the path that she took to get here. Obligatory reference to Becoming Beyonce by J. Randy Terabrae. There you go. Um, (laughs) Every podcast episode. Because it's relevant every time. But (laughs) what I saw, honestly, was a six-year-old girl who had the freedom not to be perfect, not to know every line of the song already. I'm Mm. sure you said she sings all the time. I'm sure there's a clip of her singing the whole song through without having to be prompted. And I really relished that. And like, she's not, sorry, she's not like belting it out and beautifully singing or whatnot. She sounds like a six-year-old. And being able to be that, like to be utterly childlike and not to have to perform perfectly and not to have to show no flaws or be, you know, a strong, talented black child to to kind of uh, co-opt something you were saying, I thought was was part of that underscoring there. Like, this is the gift you mm-hmm. give to your child, that they don't have to be perfect. They don't have to be on, that she's singing because it's fun, not because it's a performance or because she's meant to be the next Beyonce. I, I, that was what it said to me. Yeah, you're right. There's there, there's a passing of the torch in the way I saw it, I guess, but without pressure, which is, I guess, how you're how you're seeing it. There's a joy there that I think is the hope for the next generation that they get to be joyful without all of the other things that came before them. And yeah, I think that it, you're right. It was it was blue being able to to not to be imperfect to just be a kid to be herself which goes back to the thesis of the next generation gets to be themselves and be joyful and and feel beautiful in their own skin um because of the work Beyonce is doing and because of the joy of music right like this is Beyonce says she grew up going to these homecomings at the HBCUs and so forth. Not everybody is a performer, is a singer, is a whatever. Music gives everybody joy anyway, right? Like you don't have to be, I I felt as though, you know, it was kind of underscored through the whole piece, but you don't have to be Beyonce to love performing. You don't have to be super, super talented to feel like it gives you something. And that was a little, a little moment there Nothing's accidental, as you point out, mm-hmm. including the, oh, you want to do it again? You're like mm-hmm. mommy, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, which, you know, we get it. Uh, but I that to me was part of it. Like music is joy for its own purpose, not for a greater aim anywhere. Maybe she will be a performer, but she also doesn't have to be. Mm-hmm. So let's close with some analysis on where this, the achievement of Homecoming stands alongside the growing list of Beyonce's achievements. Um, and 
what you think of Homecoming on its merits as a film. Well, I think that Homecoming, like Homecoming, the performance, where it stands in Beyonce's like lexicon, let's say, I think it's number one. And I think it, it's number one by design. She, she says over and over in the film that her entire career was leading up to this moment. Yeah. Um, and I think she treated it like that, mm-hmm. uh, especially with um, the inclusion of Destiny's Child, of Kelly and Michelle, which I literally was on my feet dancing and jumping the whole time. Yes. Um, but I think that, yeah, that was by design. It is, it is number one. It is her pinnacle at this point. Um, she, she is going to surpass it, I, I will guess. But as of right now, it's the top. Um, and as far as the film, one of the, my um, questions before we started was, is this going to be a film that we can put in Beyonce's history of this shows her work? This is um, a music documentary that you can put in the Music Hall of Fame that really shows who Beyonce is as an artist and the feat that it was to perform Beachella perform this performance, um, and whether her ego and her um, need to control everything would take away from that as a film, um, and I don't think that it did. I think that she succeeded in making this a music documentary um, that will hold up um, in history. I, th- I think that she did. There is, of course, some moments where you're like, this is Beyonce, written by Beyonce, produced by Beyonce, <laughs> starring Beyonce, where she's making herself look the, the best Beyonce possible. Of course, there's moments of that. But I, I do think it holds up. Yeah, as a film, I think that it does a thing that I didn't expect. As I as I mentioned, you know, initially kind of wondering about like, is it so behind the scenes? Is it about the grit of the work and all that kind of thing? Um, and I do think that is there. I do think that when people point to her, you know, until they opened the Parkwood Museum of Beyonce. Um, I call it a library, but yeah. Well, I assume it will <laughs> yeah. be a museum by that point, but yeah. Um, you know, that this is uh, more than we've ever seen in a lot of ways, this is an, an explanation and a sort of a textural analysis of that in as much as she's going to allow us ever, right? But the other thing that I think it does as a film is for someone like me who is going in and expecting uh, that kind of thing and how does she do this and what is her process and how is whatever – the focus on everyone else, on the performers, on all of those people who uh, were characters, but I think who she said, you know, who shine, um, it was very clear that the message was, it doesn't matter actually what she does. It's giving you permission to go and be excellent in your world, like to feel limitless in your world. That to me is a, is the film critic version of this film and I think it's A, admirable and B, absolutely accomplishes what it's setting out to do. I don't think she's going to get enough credit um, 
on the technical side of the film as she often doesn't. I mean, she does get a lot of credit for her onstage charisma and her ability to own the stage. I don't think she has ever in her career gotten enough credit for what she does behind the scenes to put music together, to produce, to arrange. I think we all agree with that. And I don't think on film, like tech side, I don't think she's going to get the credit on the technical part of it, like the editing, all the things we've already covered, camera, all that. Um, I can't help, though, but compare Homecoming to Life is But a Dream, which was her previous documentary that aired on HBO, which, to your point, Kathleen, was directed by Beyonce, (laughs) starring Beyonce, (laughs) Beyonce interviewing Beyonce, which is a thing I laughed at. Like, at the time, because it's absurd. Like, you know, there was an interviewer there, like a person asking her questions that she decided that would be asked, um, directed by her. Like, it just, documentary style doesn't work. Like, uh, from a storytelling perspective. Totally. And it was, sorry to interrupt you, but this was also before the celebrity... Um, cutting off access and giving you yeah. this presentation of of myself right. um, that we're so used to now. Right. This was before that. Yeah. So it was even more laughable. Yeah. It, it, to me, that was, it was funny. It's like, I, I've seen it, whatever, lots and lots of times, but it's something mm-hmm. I still laugh at. Now, she has progressed as a storyteller. She's still kind of doing the same thing. This Homecoming is directed by Beyonce, <laughs> written by directing star, starring Beyonce. However, she's removed that and she instead became the narrator. So we, when we're hearing her voice, it's, I think, over a phone. Like, it's some kind of recording. It sounded to me like she was speaking into voice notes in her phone, like maybe late at night, right? And then using that as the the narration. Yeah. And so she's gone from interviewing herself as the subject to becoming a narrator, which is much more effective. Absolutely. From, like, as a storytelling technique. Um, And I won't say it's perfect quite yet. I mean… I'm, I feel fear for myself now. <laughs> I don't think it, but I, it, what she's showing is improvement as she's done over the course of her career. So, of course. I mean, listen, of course, like I would love like a Barry Jenkins to direct and write and tell uh, Beyonce behind the scenes at Homecoming story. Of course. Like I think that that maybe film wise yeah. would hold up more than this does, but Yeah, like you said, if we're comparing it to Life is But a Dream (laughs) and we're comparing it to what we've seen from Beyonce in the past, this is far exceeds that. It was a better way to to not – it was a better way to achieve what she was trying to do in Life Life is But a Dream. And so from there, we can see the improvement. Mm -hmm. Again, this is Beyonce. Are we ever going to get – I mean – you, I love the word that you used at the beginning of the show, Duanna, which is restraint. It's a skill so few artists have. Um, Madonna right now is about to release a new album. A single is dropping today. And like every five minutes, it seems, on her Instagram, she's like doing a teaser. And it, it's kind of like, I'm excited as a Madonna fan, but I'm like, slow your fucking roll, like chill out, you know, like understand that restraint can, you know, give something good. Beyonce is such a master of restraint. So, but this is like, we can debate this forever, but I just want to sit with this for a while. Is restraint helpful in documentary? 
So it, it's, it's an interesting concept to explore. I think you can argue it both ways. I think restraint works for Beyonce with what she's trying to do in her career. Mystery, letting us figure out the answers. But when it comes to revelation, can it work? Can they coexist? Mm-hmm. But again, it's, it's also like what the, the point or the goal of this documentary was. And I don't know if it was revelation. I agree. And I felt watching um, watching the Coachella performance again, uh, coupled with the documentary elements, it was the first time that I saw Beyonce as, you know, she references a 22-year career. Uh, and of course, I've always known that, but I've always thought of her as young. I've always thought of her as a young person. And this was the first time I sort of went, oh, you are middle-aged is not correct, uh, and it's not a term we really use anymore, but she is, as of this recording, 37 years old. Like, she's closer to 40 than 20 by a long shot. She's closer to being the age of all those young people's parents. And so, to me, the restraint or not, the revelation or not, comes up with that thing that we hear a lot of women talk about where it's like, I care less like I, I'm, I'm trying less hard to make the riddle inside an enigma that is life is but a dream, right? Mm-hmm. She's like, this is, this is what I have. I, I feel the need to produce it less mm-hmm. and to manage it less because I'm, I'm more and more comfortable. That was my overwhelming feeling on that front. I think I, I don't disagree. And again, this is a question, I think, that it's a fun question to debate and one of those things where it's nice to sit with and wrestle with to give us something to like ponder. From a narrative perspective, if you're going to quote, it's Maya Angelou's voiceover in the trailer. In the very beginning? In the very, in the very beginning, yeah. And also that's used in the trailer. And there's one line, I'm not going to get it exactly word for word, but she says, to tell the truth. Mm-hmm. Mm. So when you're putting together those three words from a narrative storytelling perspective, that's all, right? This is a story. It's a two-hour and 17-minute story, like all films are. So if you're going to throw down those three words and yet the word restraint still comes up, there's a natural tension. Now, natural tension obviously works as a storytelling device. I, If it's intentional, great. I mean, these are the mysteries and enigmas that Beyonce gives us all the time. I love it. I am not complaining. But I just think that I love that, you know, we haven't figured it out. She's giving us more things to talk about that we can't possibly fit in on three episodes, let alone like, you know, obviously right now. But that is, if we're going to talk about the merits of a story, that to me is what's interesting and what I'm going to be thinking about. Yeah, and I think that comes back to those two things come together for me, restraint and tell the truth, Mm -hmm. come together for me under what is her thesis, what's her overall mission, what it like the the exact amounts of those in the Venn diagram Mm -hmm. come together in what am I trying to do in terms of showing everyone, but especially uh, black people, but especially young black women, but especially, you know, people who have experienced historically black colleges and universities, how much they can be and do. So the answer to like how much of that seasoning you put in, how much is restraint and how much is is truth telling and so forth is what serves that thesis. Yeah, I agree. And I think that the truth 
that she was trying to push forward, which it was like coupled with the like first part of that Maya Angelou quote is you're beautiful. You're worthy. You're, you're good enough. You're here. You're, you can be yourself. Like those are the truths, let's say that she was trying to put out and drive home. And maybe it was with a little restraint. Maybe it was a little like withholding some of her, her own truth or whatever you want to call it. But I think, yeah, to your point, Joanna, it made her. It made the point that she wanted to make, and it's from a place where Beyonce can relate to them. Mm-hmm. The part of the truths that are absent here are also the things that are different from the vast multitude of people, right? Like the the money and the success and the way that she lives her life. And I think that's not the point. There were no yachts and private planes here, mm-hmm. and I thought that was exactly right. There was a lot of sweatpants and a lot of like ponytails. Yeah. Um, because it's about how we're similar, not how we're different. It's true. There was not one helicopter shot. <laughs> <laughs> or yacht. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Kathleen. Thank you so much for having me. Yay. Um, thank you, Beyonce, <laughs> for your blessings and your love and your light. I think that's a good place to end <laughs> on. Thank you for choosing us, Beyonce. Thank you for choosing us. We know you guys are going to have all kinds of feelings and we want to hear all of them and the parts that struck you that we didn't talk about. So please, please hit us up in all the ways you know how to get us. Uh, Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Um, Tweet at Kathleen or Instagram message her or me or Duanna. Um, Thank you so much for listening. And we'll be back next week. Bye. Bye.